0: great stuff. Love the worship. Thank you for that. Great preparation of the heart this morning. Well, Sally and I have uh, been up and down the 75 yet again. I don't know how many times we've been up and down that road in the last few weeks. Uh, But we went down to see um, our son and daughter-in-law and the arrival of our new grandchild, Noah James Breen. There he is. And um, he's, a, he's a tiny thing, but uh, very healthy, very chilled, very happy, as is his mother Taylor and his father Sam. So we're very grateful for that. It was a 53-hour labor. Seems fairly straightforward <laughs> to me, but there again, I am, I am of that particular gender that doesn't know anything about it, but, um, but it was um, remarkably uh, smooth given that length of time And uh, we're very glad to welcome him into the world. And we're also very glad to know that we're not going to be going back down that freeway very soon again. (laughs) I think we'll have to get them to come to us, Sally. What do you think? So over these last few weeks, we have been looking at these two great themes of Scripture that hold together the fabric of God's revelation Made clear and writ large within the Bible. These two great themes, starting on the first page and finishing on the last, help us to understand what it is that God has done and what it is that God intends to do through us. These two great themes of relationship and responsibility, but already in our discussions and in our deliberations together over these last few weeks, we've realized that responsibility, though an accurate word to describe the calling of the subjects of the king living within the kingdom, actually the word is representation. If we're to function in the kingdom under our Father who is the king, then our call is to have a relationship with him and to represent him. Represent him in all his goodness, in all his mercy, in all of his kindness and grace. Representing him to the world around us so that they get to see who their father is. So they get to see who the king of the universe truly is. Right at the very beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God has completed the amazing array of creative expression that is the universe. Even now we're still awed by the wonder of it all. And here on the sixth day, God crowns his creation with a creature that is greater than the most beautiful of galaxies. God crowns his creation with a creature more complex than the most intricate molecule. God crowns his creation with us. And this is what he says as he speaks in his own star chamber before the royal court of heaven. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We're made in his image and we're made to rule. Not rule as those who usurp the authority of God, but rule as those who represent the authority of God. And in that representation, we are of course showing to the world that there is a relationship that supports that representation. A relationship that is articulated in this word image. Yes, image gives us some sense of representing God. But perhaps in the minds of those who first heard these words, The picture was much more of an impression made in clay. And so perhaps the first word picture that was understood as this word image was God forming us from the very clay of the earth and leaving his handprint upon us. And that handprint was always to be filled with the hand that made it. And of course the story is that we pull away from the hand of God and the imprint is now an empty space. And perhaps the whole of human history is predicated on human beings longing for that emptiness to be filled. And so so this idea right at the very beginning of... Relationship and representation is foundational to our understanding of what it means when the Bible describes who we are and how we belong to God. We belong to God because He has gone to the enormous trouble, the enormous cost of forming a relationship with us on the basis of the substitutory death of His Son. And in doing that, He has made a relationship with us so that we are able To represent him in all his loving desire for his creation. And in doing all of that, of course, he is redeeming that which was lost when we pulled away from his hand and broke that first covenant with him. These words are made clear when we see them as covenant and kingdom. There is a sense in which we are called to be and to do. Now, all of that is absolutely true, and it's true of you today, and it's true of me today. We're called to be human beings before we're called to be human doings, but we are called to be human doings. Relationship is the very basis of our life, both here in community and in our our communion with God. It is relationship that is the very foundation, but that relationship is the basis for us to do something on behalf of God, in the presence and in the power of God. When we see in the unfolding pattern and picture of scripture we realize that these interlocking themes are something like something like the double helix of DNA with genesis at one end and revelation at the other and these These interlocking themes are found on every page. When you're reading the Bible, if you're you're wanting to go deeper into the scriptures, here are two questions that you can ask. What does this scripture say to me about relationship? And then secondly, what does this scripture say to me about how I represent God? When you find yourself stuck maybe in the minor prophets and wondering how you ever got there or perhaps you find yourself in the long grass of books like daniel or revelation and you're thinking to yourself is there somebody around who's got any idea about what all this means just just go back to those two questions relationship or representation it's one or the other, or perhaps even both. Maybe there's an emphasis in one way or an emphasis in the other. When you look at the different books of the Bible, there is clearly an emphasis one way or another. You get to a book like Isaiah. Pres- I think that's pronounced Isaiah in these parts. You get to that, you get to that book and really the principal theme is the kingship of God. How do we know that? Because Isaiah is in the temple and he sees the king, God, high and lifted up and he says, I'm undone. And of course, from that very point, we see the unfolding revelation of the kingship of God even manifest in the suffering servant who will, of course, be Jesus, the Son of God. If we go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah is so much more about covenant. From that very first understanding of Jeremiah being called as he's being knit together in the womb, we see the unfolding picture of what it means to have a relationship with God and how God will take away our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and upon that heart of flesh, he will write his law so that the law is no longer an external code to which we are constantly seeking to live up, but rather it is a guiding principle within us. And of course we see that fulfilled in the life of Jesus and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We come to the New Testament and the first three books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, quite clearly have a huge emphasis on the kingdom teaching of Jesus. Matthew and Mark most certainly articulate what it is that Jesus had to say, especially in Galilee, to the huddled masses who were longing to hear a message of hope and redemption. And Jesus comes and explains in detail and in beautiful, creative colour what the kingdom is all about. We see a transition in, in Luke away from simply describing the kingdom into more kingdom and covenant, but by the time we get to John's gospel, it's a gospel of the covenant. Yes, there are, there are uh, little expressions and articulations of the kingdom within it, but it's as though the Holy Spirit saw fit to ensure that by the time the gospels were completed, we had a full understanding of what Jesus, the Son of God, would reveal to us both about our relationship and our call to represent the king. And so, as you look at the scriptures, look for these themes, themes that will call you to be, and themes that will call you to do. Like the latitude and longitude of any standard map like the warp and the woof of any fabric, you'll find that kingdom and covenant are fully expressed and most perfectly articulated when one who is called the king of the Jews Dies on a cross on our behalf. On the cross, the King reaches down and the Father embraces. And so we have this cruciform reality of the King reaching towards us and the Father embracing us. Of course, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see that in the way that he functioned, he actually calibrated his teaching according to relationship and representation, relationship and responsibility. Jesus begins his ministry by the word, come, what does the word come indicate? It indicates an invitation. Jesus is inviting his first disciples to follow. And you see the invitation increase and grow throughout his time with them until the invitation is to understand that their lives are so intricately caught up with his own that he says to them you and I we are one just as I am one with the father imagine that imagine that right now some of us struggle through the week wondering where God is some of us carry heavy burdens. Some of us have clouds that stretch to us from the past and their cold fingers permeate our thoughts, our aspirations, our relationships. And you wonder, as I have from time to time, where is God in all of this? Well, where he is is right next to you, closer than a brother. He who is with you will be in you, says Jesus. And so those who have bowed the knee to Jesus and invited him to be Savior and Lord cannot be any closer to God because he dwells within you. Amen. Imagine the God of the universe lives within you. Doesn't that that bear repeating time and time again? God lives within us. The same God that was in all of the works of Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, The Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost, the third person of the Trinity. They together inhabit your life. I mean, it's beyond working out, isn't it? And yet, it's true. And the invitation of Jesus is for us to go further in our understanding, to... to to go further with him in the revelation that he wants to give us so that we can walk in confidence, so that we can walk in a sense of courage every day. Not courage in ourselves, not confidence in our own capacity, but confidence in his presence. My brother, some years ago, died from the effects of alcohol, and nicotine. It was a very sad ending to a short life. He was my older brother, and as most younger brothers do, I idolized him in a kind of right kind of way. I mean, he wasn't a god to me, but he was, he was kind of an idol. He was an incredible athlete, he was a remarkable person, and he was top of his class as he graduated from the military academy in England. And I remember one time he came home and I could smell the army on him. Those combat fatigues have got a particular smell about them. It's not an unpleasant smell. It's not a, it's not a body odour smell. It's just this kind of, I don't know what it is. It's maybe the webbing and the canvas and the... And the bravery and adventure, all in there together. It would make a great cologne for men. I don't know whether anybody's ever thought of that, but, but he would come home smelling of the army. And he, uh, he came back and he was in the kitchen. He was there in his combat fatigues. And he, said, he always used to call me Michael. He said, uh, so how are you doing, Michael? And I said, I'm doing okay. And he noticed that I, was, I wasn't quite as chirpy as, uh, as I had been in the past. You see, there was a boy down the street who had been bullying all the young lads on our road. He was a very, very unpleasant character. He was a big boy, he was older than us, and probably got dropped on his head as a baby. I don't know what the reasons were, but But for some reason, he felt it necessary to to bully the people around him. Well, my brother finally wheedled the truth out of me and he said, so where's this this guy hang out? I said, well, just down the end of the street. He said, "Uh, let's go for a walk. Well, my heart began to beat. And I walked down that street and I felt 10 feet tall because this giant of a man was walking beside me. And it just so happened that Billy the Bully was taking a bicycle from one of my friends at the end of the street. Pushing him over as he got on it. You could see, Billy, he he kind of thought that the sun had gone behind a cloud (laughs) as my brother got closer to him. Because he kind of looked up and thought, what's that? Of course, he's in the shadow of this man who's stood behind him. Champion pole vaulter, incredible athlete. And he turned around and looked full in the face of my brother. He hadn't noticed that I was there at all. And my brother said, it's Billy, isn't it? And immediately, the young man realised he was in the presence of someone greater than himself and said, yes, sir, I just thought it was the best day of my life. John said um that's my brother John he said uh, he said now Billy I'm sure this isn't true but I've heard that you bully some of these younger boys around here but that's not true is it he said no sir he said no I've never do anything like that and he said well just in case I come home regularly and I hear all of the news of the street, and if ever I heard that you were bullying the little boys, you'd have to answer to me. I never got bullied again. You see, the thing is, is that we don't realize that we stand in the shadow of a giant, We walk through life thinking that every bully has to be taken on by ourselves. And yet, there's one who's greater, one who's stronger, one who has compassion for us, who not only stands with us, but stands for us. Jesus gave this invitation. But as well as an invitation, he gave a challenge. There was an invitation to covenant relationship in everything that Jesus said, but there was a challenge to represent him, the king. And of course, the easiest way that we see that is in the very last words of Jesus. You see, these themes are so riven throughout Scripture that they're there at the granular level. Jesus says, come. It's clear that this is the beginning of an understanding, a fresh revelation of what it means to be in covenant with God. He says, go. It's quite clear that this is a fresh revelation of what it means to represent the king. You and I, this very day, are invited to come to accompany Jesus, to, to become intimate with him, to know him daily, to listen for his voice, and to speak to him, and to, and this is incredible, because he could have done this lots of other ways and to represent him in our families, amongst our friends, and in our workplace. But when we see Jesus offering this invitation and challenge, what is the principal vehicle through which he reveals these two great themes? Obviously, There is a sense of community whenever we find ourselves in covenant and clearly there is a sense of mission whenever we we bow to the understanding that we represent the king. But how how does Jesus do it? Well, in mark's gospel along with many other places we find some things that jesus did and said that makes it very clear the principal vehicle that he wants to use today to express and articulate relationship and representation If you turn with me to Mark chapter three. Verse 20, Jesus comes home again. Where to? Probably to the home of Peter. There are various teachers, Pharisees, Levites present along with his disciples. And we get to hear that his family are on the way. Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now Jesus really wanted his family involved in what it was that he was doing. We know this because when he left the wilderness, immediately after being baptized and hearing the father's voice, he goes into the wilderness, takes on the enemy of our souls, defeats him, revealing that Appetite, approval, and ambition, the fundamental temptations of human existence are ones that he can overcome in the face of the enemy. Luke tells us that he goes into the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he comes out of the wilderness full of the power of the Spirit. Having fought on the ground of his identity, if you are the son of God, and having fought on behalf of humanity against the great temptations of appetite, approval, and ambition. Jesus recognises that the switch gears of heaven are thrown. And now he comes out of the wilderness, not simply full of the Holy Spirit, but full of power. And the first place that he goes to is Nazareth. And the first thing he says is, I'm anointed to do a specific work, the work of the good news. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me And he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind, freedom for the prisoner. The people of Nazareth, his family, his friends, those that he's been raised with for his entire life, think it's wonderful until he mentions that it's people of different races, of different backgrounds, of different ethnicities that he's also come for? And they say, surely not. And he says, I've come for more. I've come for everybody. I've come for the people who you think are the least worthy recipients of God's love. They're the ones I've come for. And they become enraged with him and they take him to the cliff and they, and they go to throw him from the cliff but of course it's not his time and so he walks among them and away from them. But there's no suggestion that his brothers are forming a defensive ring around him. There's no word about Mary trying to talk the crowd into some sense. The terrible thing is that Jesus came To his own, and his own rejected him. That's what John says. Imagine how that felt for Jesus. And so Jesus leaves Nazareth, rarely to ever return, and goes to Galilee and to Capernaum, and there forms a community a community that has a particular description. His family believe that he's out of his mind. Now, I wonder whether anyone knows what that means in the the parlance of the day. Today, it's a kind of a therapeutic statement. Generally, we wouldn't say a person's out of their mind unless we're just being kind of very casual about the way that we're describing people. In the time of Jesus, the simple meaning was this. He has a demon. That's what it means. Now, there's no no real doubt about that. That's not something that's kind of up for debate. That's absolutely the way that, that language is used in the time of Jesus, and we know that because immediately after the family of Jesus describe him as being out of his mind, the teachers of the law are recorded as saying, I'll see your demon, and I'll raise you, Beelzebub. Look what it says in verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. And then Jesus basically goes into a long discursus and description of what it means for these folks to be saying this. And he says, look, this is the kind of thing that divides households. I wonder which household he was referring to. Of course, his own. A house divided cannot stand. And no one can come and take possession of a strong man's house unless he first overcomes the strong man. And so clearly, Jesus is greater than the strong man Beelzebub. Literally, if we were to translate the word Beelzebub, it would be Lord of the Flies. And so Jesus is shooting a warning shot across the bow of his family saying, guys, you're you're trespassing into waters that are going to cause a wreck because you're saying that the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of an evil spirit. And if you go there, there's no way back. And then we get to the point where the family arrive. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. And mother, I wonder how that would go down in Dayton, 2019. Your mom's outside. Your siblings are outside. You know, you had a bit of a bust-up over Christmas. You know, things haven't gone too well. They're outside. They want to see you, and you see, your answer is, I don't. They're not my family anymore. My family's defined by other things. How do you think that would fly? I don't think it would fly very far. And that's today. Imagine in the time of Jesus. Now we know that the brothers don't get it together until after the resurrection. Paul tells us that Jesus appears to 500 and then finally to James, his brother, Imagine that conversation after the resurrection. Hi, Jimmy, how are you doing? Wow, that must have been a shocking day for Jimmy boy. What do you think? We know that, that they spoke kind of sarcastically about Jesus. Why don't you go to the festival if you're such a special person? You ought to show yourself publicly. But we also know that Mary this good-hearted woman is drawn back onto the path because we discover that she's there at the cross with Jesus at the very end. What was the vehicle that Jesus intended to use as the means to reveal to the world that God wants a relationship with every person and he wants every person to represent him. The vehicle was simply this. A family on mission. I wonder how many times you've considered this. When you look at what it is that Jesus reveals about God, the single most important and singularly most significant revelation of who God is, is that He is our Father. It's an unknown concept up to this point. It is barely mentioned in the Old Testament. There may be a couple of references. As a father, is compassionate towards his children, says the psalmist. But this is, not, this is not a way of understanding God. But from the first moment, Jesus comes to the world and steps onto the stage of history and says, God is to be known as Daddy. And that means you and I a family. We're a family. And as a family, we are to embrace the understanding that we are a covenant family with a relationship with our father that extends through us to our brothers and sisters. And in that security of relationship that we have first with God and then with others, a relationship that is called righteousness, right relationship in the Bible. On the basis of that relationship, we represent God. Now this doesn't mean that you can only do this if you're a couple with children Jesus was a single man and he formed a family. A family on mission. This doesn't mean that somehow you have to kind of submit to the conditions of the Western nuclear family. Because of course, there is no understanding of nuclear family in the Bible. Every familial word from father down through mother, brothers and sisters, even the word family itself is based upon the understanding that it's the extended family that is being spoken about. So what is the vehicle? It's your house church. I know that you think that it's kind of just a fun group and you hang out and you spend time together and there's some really neat people in there that kind of teach you and you get to eat together mostly pizza have you ever thought what do you think the New Testament church looked like do you think they gathered in buildings like this you see what it is that God is doing among us is still so unique that actually a lot of other Christians look at it as if it's kind of odd. And yet, it is the closest expression that I know of the early church that on the day of Pentecost met at the temple in their gatherings and in their extended families, the word is called home, or in the Greek, it's the oikos. So, from the very first day of Pentecost, where it was possible, Christians would have gatherings and families. But of course, when persecution comes, you can't do the gathering because it's just a big target. But the families can continue. And so through 250 years of fairly continuous, publicly sponsored persecution on the church, the families of God proliferate until 50% of the Roman Empire become Christians by the time of Emperor Constantine In 313. Imagine. How will we reach Dayton? Through families on mission. How will we see justice, transformation in communities of poverty? How will we see the under resourced transformed in their understanding and aspirations of life? Will it be the government? Most people are already old enough to know that that's not gonna ever be the case. Is it gonna be the institution of the church? Unlikely, we've not achieved it in 2000 years. And yet, where the house church becomes the cornerstone of God's community and mission. We see amazing things happen. A hundred million Christians in atheist China. Half of the Roman Empire becoming a Christian. Now, this is not supposed to be a publicity drive for house churches. I'm simply saying this. The first house church was the one that Jesus started. And he was really, really serious. He was really, really intentional. He was really, really committed. He functioned as the surrogate parent He would call his disciples his little ones. His children. He took the place of the father at Passover and dealt with his disciples as if they were members of his household, speaking to them as adult children. This is where it began for us as Christians. Surely, we're missing something if we're not part. Surely, we're not connecting with some of the grace of God. If the thing that Jesus used as his initial vehicle that's available to us today is something that we're not part of. So what would that family on mission offer. It would be a home that gives help. You know, that's often, that's all that people need. Just help. You know, we turned up on the coldest day in history with our wagon load of stuff that we dragged around the world several times. I forgot what the temperature was. We had a warming room to keep people alive. Mark Withers turned up in his ski mask so his face didn't freeze off. And we emptied the truck in record time. We've done it a lot of times as a, as a family. But where would we have been without some help? we'd probably still be emptying that truck today. Sometimes all you need is a bit of help. It's a very simple way to reveal the compassion and care of God. But the home formed by the family on mission can be a home that offers hope You know, in a world where it seems as though the ground is shifting beneath us, where politics and geopolitical concerns are pressing themselves upon us every day to the extent that you don't want to turn the, the, the television on anymore, or you don't want to read the papers anymore because you're thinking, Good night, what am I going to hear today? Hope has become a fairly scarce commodity in so many people's lives. Your family on mission is supposed to be a home of hope. And it can be many other things, but it is at least a home of healing. Last week we had such a wonderful time, didn't we? praying for the sick and learning how to do that. We've had marvelous testimonies all week. Amazingly, we've had as many testimonies from the people who prayed as we've had from the people who were prayed for. Isn't that interesting? You see, I think it would be a really cool thing if the people who lived in the streets of this city and the suburbs and the neighborhoods around it knew that there was somewhere where they could go and get some help, where they could go and find some hope and they could find some healing. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? Am I speaking in a library again? (laughs) Would that be great? It would be amazing, wouldn't it? It'd be amazing if people said, do you know, if you need some help, then there's that group of people, they'll help. And if you're feeling down today and you need some hope, then there's that place over there. You can go and find hope there. And you need healing? Well, I mean, it sounds a bit weird, but they really believe in it. They think that God does it and not the doctors. Who'd funk? thunk? So there it is. The call that we have. At the end of our service today, I want us to take the opportunity to pray again for the sick. I think there are some people maybe here this week thinking, oh, I hope he does that again. Of course, it's nothing to do with me. I'm assuming that Jesus wants to do it all the time. And so if you are here this week carrying any burden of sickness at all, whether it be physical or mental or emotional, then when I give the call at the end of the service, I'd love you to come. But here's the thing. What I want you to do this week is grab some people from your house church and come and pray for one of those people together in community. Grab a couple of people from your house church and say, come on then, let's have a go. And I'll direct it again so that there's no kind of weirdness and boxes of snakes and all of that kind of stuff. We'll, we'll make sure that it's all above board and correct. But, but we bring our members of our house church with us and we pray for the sick because here's the thing I think we're getting good at helping. And I think we're getting better at offering hope. And I think one day soon we're going to be known as a community where you can go and get healed. It's got nothing to do with denominational background or theological emphases. It's just what Jesus did. Everybody good with that? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you place the lonely in families. We're so grateful that you have been revealed to us as Father And we thank you, Father, that you have gone that extra step and shown that you're not only Father, but you're King. Lord, may we today live the life of those who know you to be Father and King. And so, Lord, we pray that we might build our lives, our families on mission around relationship and representation. Because we ask it according to the character, according to the identity, and for the glory of your son. And all God's people say,